0: Before we get started, I just want to reach out and send my best wishes. I hope you and yours are safe during this time with the coronavirus, which is panicking all of us. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to hear from you. I hope all is well. And if you want to connect at all, I'm on all the socials as Hunley Eric, that's my direct account or Unstructured P. I'm always available and love to hear from you in these trying times. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we have Brian Gill of GillWare.com. And Brian works with cybersecurity, forensics, things of that sort. Is that a fair description?
1: Yeah, so for the last 15 years, Gilware has been assisting businesses and some consumers. We have been heads down helping dig companies and people out of data-related disasters. Loss of data, usually through normal crashes for like the first 10 years, and for the last five years, it's been a lot of ransomware events, data exfiltration, malicious employee behavior, which leads to civil litigation and criminal litigation. So digital forensics, data recovery, incident response, that's that's kind of been what we've been up to over here.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the employee and exfiltration. Is a lot of the damage from rogue employees?
1: I, I wouldn't say a lot, but when it happens, it's ridiculous how devastating it is and how difficult it is to prevent. And, you know, there's been obviously some really big stories in the news about some of the events. But one of our clients in the digital forensics world had one of their scientists steal all of their design work and and move to China. And three months later, there was a Chinese competitor. And, uh, you know, we, we represented, we did all the forensics behind the scenes to prove that he did it. And, you know, in that lawsuit, our clients won about, you know, it was it was well over $50 million in that particular lawsuit. So when we bump into those things, while not as frequent as like ransomware or just natural crashes, when mm. it happens, it's often incredibly devastating at the highest level of a corporation.
0: Okay, well, let's go into ransomware because you even saw a tool, a ransomware stress tool. Ransomware, from what I understand, is people will either grab your files or they'll encrypt your files on your own drive and then essentially say that they're encrypted and you got to give us X amount of dollars to get the um, key to unlock the encryption. Is that what it is?
1: It's pretty close. So the data really is encrypted, is the first thing to understand. There's a number of different technologies that kind of came together and had this nasty ransomware baby. The first is encryption. So the bad guys typically are going to use legitimate, kind of big boy, unhackable, all the computing power on the earth for millennia to to brute force, right? So the encryption is really there and it really works. And those files are legitimately encrypted. And one of the new technologies over the last 10 years that's become really, really easy to implement is encryption. The second one is, is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. So the way they want to get paid is not necessarily in dollars but it is in an anonymous cryptocurrency. Right. So that allows the bad guys to get paid and us not to be able to catch them very easily or track down where that payment goes very easily. And then people have been kind of hacking computer networks since there've been computer networks. So that's kind of always been there, but but those are the trends that kind of led to this situation. which And they will target individuals, but Individuals are going to get hit with just kind of spam emails. They'll click a weird link. It'll launch a thing that might get one user's laptop or desktop. But the real target is businesses.
0: Okay, now how are they getting? Is it through just straightforward phishing?
1: I'd say about, I think the official stat is probably 60 to 70% of these situations will start with either a human making a mistake with horrifyingly bad passwords no firewall. So they've got, maybe they get phished. They, the bad guys get an IP address and a password, and then they don't have a firewall and they've got open RDP on a desktop. So then at 6 PM at night, they'll RDP onto your box and, and oh, shoot, you know, this guy looks like Eric works at a company with 200 people. I wonder what mm-hmm. network permissions he has. And now they're now they're up on the Z drive and they're encrypting all the data for the whole company all of a sudden, right? But typically, it's a really slow burn. One of the big misconceptions is that it happens right away or that it's an automated process. When we're talking about the real ransomware crisis that's costing legitimately billions of dollars to American companies every year, these are savvy humans on the network. And the average amount of time that we find they've been on the network is over three months. So like the average is like six months. So they are very savvy and they bide their time, they fully understand the network topography, they fully understand the business, they fully understand the monthly revenue of this company, and they are looking to inflict maximum damage and price their ransom demand very effectively.
0: Not only are they savvy, are they not sometimes even state-sponsored, like North Korea? Correct.
1: That is exactly right. So a lot of these, where they're from, what they're doing is not necessarily illegal. They very well might be state-sponsored North Korea. In North Korea, if you are able to steal $10 million of Bitcoin from an American company, that very well might go right into the state go coffers. Go,
0: comrade.
1: <laughs> if you were doing it as an indiv- individual, they'd probably be upset with you. But if you're working for the government and that money goes to their nuclear weapons program or whatever they're trying to do. Food. I mean, or just food. Or just food.
0: There's so many sanctions against them that I, I'm sure that any means and I just saw that Iran is um starting to up their campaign with some crippling viruses.
1: Yeah, I mean there's there certainly are there is definitely a lot of state sponsored shenanigans that go on. And it's you know
0: And we do it too, Stuxnet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we do it too. And we don't do it necessarily as maliciously, but they're always, all the states are always trying to penetrate each other. And, but when it comes to ransomware specifically, yeah, I mean, these aren't necessarily even just individuals. Like when I was a 13 year old hacker and just trying to like hack my own computer or hack my parents network or, you know, break into something like it's not that this this is legitimate criminal enterprise or what we would consider mm-hmm. criminal enterprise they are they've got customer support staff they've got programmers they've got legitimate infrastructure when they get those half million million quarter million dollar wins they will reinvest in additional staff additional people additional exploits
0: organized crime
1: it's organized crime it's certainly there could be one or two you know of those kind of angsty 16-year-old kids just looking for a quick payday. I'm sure some of the, but it's probably significantly less than 10% of the events are, are those types of lone wolves.
0: Do you have any examples you can tell me about that, you know, of ransomware, a situation that you came across, how it happened, and what you did to mitigate?
1: So for some perspective, we get inquiries where people, companies want to hire us approximately 15 to 20 per day. So th- this is not a small problem. This is not a geez. I hope that's a- nationally. Yeah, so we're a nationwide service. Okay. But you know, again, we we're not a huge company. We have around 50 employees and we're and we don't take every inquiry we get, but we get about 20-ish inquiries per day that this has happened, they've been encrypted with this ransomware and they're looking to hire us to come in and assist. And that's the incident response part of our business. You know, some of the biggest ones we see happen. And obviously a lot of this stuff makes the newspaper and people read about the, Oh, 20 cities in Texas and Mm -hmm. uh, all these or the whole city of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Our, our biggest client, our, our biggest job ever was, I I think it was over 2,500 nodes affected. It Mm -hmm. was a, it was a public university where they got all the way owned, you know. So, you know, administrators, staff, like the football teams, coaches, the athletic departments, multiple students, all that stuff locked away, and that was hundreds and hundreds of hours to help them dig out of that mess.
0: So, what 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 exactly happened then? Did they have to pay it off, or were you able to come off backup tapes? What what did you do to?
1: So again, as I mentioned earlier, the bad guys have usually been on the network a while. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- one of the reasons they're on the network a while is they want to fully understand the backups. They want to know where they are, they want to know what the process is, and luckily for them, there's probably a Word document on the network that talks about it in the IT department share,
0: okay? Mm, yes.
1: And they will fully understand that. And they will wait until they have either the appropriate network permissions or the appropriate understanding so that they can mitigate that. And sometimes they will mitigate that with encrypting the backups because they have the appropriate permission to do so. Sometimes those backups will live in a cloud resource, and they'll wait, and they'll wait, and they'll wait with a keyword logger on an IT guy's box until he goes in his once-a-quarter audit of the backups, and he types the password, and bang, they got him. And then they'll log into that and they'll try to delete them or whatever they need to do up in the cloud provider. Sometimes they won't be able to get the permission to access the individual files, but the actual SAN that sits on the network that holds all those backups still has the administrative password is default to this factory. And they'll log into the SAN and just nuke, just reinitialize the whole raid and just wipe everything that way. So you know in that particular circumstance with thousands of nodes affected there was a multitude of different ways that they had to get rid of backups because there was dozens and dozens of different backups in all these different departments but the long story short is most of these large clients of ours have cyber insurance and there is a insurance company behind the scenes and every day that that organization is affected there's an insurance policy that's going to be paying a certain amount of money to help mitigate the crazy damage that's happening to that organization.
0: So this is literally patterned off of a Central American kidnappings. Yeah. It's ransom because there's a ransom insurance on executives in Colombia, in Mexico, and you know, a lot of these other places.
1: Yeah. It's not a bad analogy and it's not a bad name. And so if that organization has a policy, that's going to pay a million dollars a day that they're down and the ransomers want, half a million dollars in ransom payment to cough up all the keys, that's a pretty easy decision, right? Okay, let's pay that ransom quickly, because as, as soon as we get this organization back up on their feet, the less amount of the normal insurance is going to pay, right? Or we might be in situations where a client doesn't have great insurance, and we might use our knowledge on our data recovery side of thing and our computer scientists to try and actually spend the time to try to figure out alternate paths to the data, whether it's trying to unnuke some of the backups. Traditionally speaking, there, there are times that we get hired where we don't even need to because they weren't able to get into the backups because the backups mm-hmm. were effectively pre- protected with a 2FA. So some of the most savvy...
0: Of or off-site, right?
1: Well, they're off-site, but off-site's not good enough, right? If all you need is a username and password to get into those and nuke them, it's not going to help. But our most savvy clients are going to have two-factor authentication on those cloud backups or their normal backups where that username and password isn't good enough. You would physically need the IT administrator's rotating digit code that's on their dongle or that's on their smartphone. And that is one of the few ways you can actually protect those backups. But when we do our risk assessment services, like less than... I'd say one out of 20, less than one of our 20 backup risk assessment clients will actually have that when we walk in the door. So it's one of the things that we advocate for strongly.
0: I'm sure. Well, and you probably advocate for two-factor all the way around.
1: Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that, that I definitely preach strongly. But in general, when we walk into the situation, we are there to figure out how they got in so that we can advise to close those doors quickly. We have to work really hard to find all the back doors that the bad guys have planted because they planted a whole bunch. We have to figure out if they've stolen the data and we have to then work with privacy counsel or regulators to figure out who they're going to have to disclose this event to. Are they going to have to disclose this to the federal government? Are they going to have to disclose Mm -hmm. this to their employees? Are they going to have to disclose this to their clients? Are they going to have to buy a life lock for their employees for the next 20 years? All those kinds of things. And we also will in some cases, put boots in the ground to help do the restores, to help do the decrypts, to help clean the network, get them back up on their feet as quickly as possible because time is money.
0: Sure. Now the the example you used earlier, what happened with them? Did they just pay the insurance?
1: So, yeah, I mean, uh, not all the way, but, and part of what we do is negotiate and we try to stay out. We don't try to negotiate as guilt We try to be as friendly and and frankly, a lot of times we're negotiating. We're we're playing it totally straight, you know. Like, hey, you know, my client's got insurance coverage for a tenth what you're demanding. They're not going right. to pay that. If you want to be reasonable and come back with a a more reasonable number, we'd love to hear it. Otherwise, they said we're just going to burn the data. And yeah, and and then sometimes they'll play ball, and sometimes they won't. So, hmm. but definitely, you know, that negotiation is something that. That we definitely have to do. In that particular situation, It you know, it was, I think, about 10 weeks of work front to back, not just with our IT staff, which had, you know, roughly a dozen people working on it, like 80 hours a week for about 10 weeks, but also lots and lots of the third party and the first party IT staff from the university to get all these different departments and administrative staff and get everybody back as quickly as we could
0: now do you, have you ever studied with or worked with anybody like Chris Voss the um, FBI negotiator he runs Black Swan because when you talked about that I was thinking about very similar to a hostage situation or a kidnapping in a way they need you because the truth is that the only people who care about the data at that university is the university itself
1: yeah so so
0: it's a, a very limited customer set
1: so you know the question was how you know, have we ever worked with, you know, people from the FBI? And the, the reality is that we hire a lot of former law enforcement officers. We have staff members that were with the FBI for more than 20 years doing incident response mm-hmm. and this type of negotiation and investigation. Our president uh, and founder was a woman named Cindy Murphy, who was a law enforcement officer and former Army and former computer crimes detective for. 27 years, I think it was. And a lot of those federal and even government or local government level LEOs, they kind of hit those retirement, almost mandatory retirement ages where, hey, listen, like when you're 25 years in, you can retire at 85% pay.
0: Exactly, And then you can collect another 150% on the outside.
1: Right. Or you can keep working there for 15 more percent. So they yeah. they don't have to retire. But you pretty much have to retire.
0: Well, they also, there's got to be enough time because like I'm in a military town. I was in the army. I mean, somebody who's in the army could potentially do 20 plus years, like 21, 22, get the retirement 50 percent. Sure. But then they can do a full civil service career right behind it. And then in that 40 year span, now they've got double careers and they're retiring at 60 to 65 fully invested all around. But if they're stuck in the army too long, then now suddenly they have to, you know, keep working until they're 70.
1: Yeah. So, you know, former FBI folks, you know, former computer crimes detectives, those are exactly the, the type of people that we have to hire.
0: Well, and that's it's good that you are. Now, we were talking about ransomware, and that's one type of thing, and that's encrypting the data and all that. There's also a thing going around, which I kind of consider to be a scam, from what i've seen people are getting the uh, hack lists from yahoo and everybody else that are on the internet finding old passwords and then getting hold of people and saying hey here's this password and i've been watching you watch porn do you want me to release the videos pay me
1: i can't tell you how many of those i've paid i just keep paying i
0: don't really, want don't... anybody to know why don't you just tape your camera
1: <laughs> Save time man <laughs> yeah, I, I can't i can't risk it it's too risky i just pay yeah no i mean so Definitely that's like one of the new Nigerian Prince scams, right? And you know, these scams are as old as time and there's there's scams where, you know, the bad guys are spoofing police department phone numbers, they're calling old people and saying, Hey, this is Chief such and such over at the police department. I've got, you know, your your son Jimmy over here and he's he needs nine hundred dollars bail and I need you to pay that with Apple gift cards, you know. <laughs> But if you're that's real how the old, police get paid is uh, Thapple gift cards. Well, that's you. That's usually <laughs> the trick, right? Is it all sounds pretty convincing because they can go to like FamilyTreeNow.com and see who this lady sure. is and see who she's related to, and they can spoof the the phone from the police department and and obviously they prey on folks that are a little older and a little more gullible vulnerable. in general and vulnerable. But you know. You wouldn't believe how many people get scammed by the IRS or by the, but not by the real IRS, you know, or get scammed sure. by these arrests or overseas arrests and they end up buying these weird payment things. And by the time their kids get wind of it and by the time the local police hear about it, it's like, what are you going to do? You know,
0: I've also heard too on, I don't remember if it's on grumpy old geeks or Darknet diaries. I'm friends with a few people, but people, especially who are older, are a lot of times not reporting it because they're afraid that their gullibility, as you put it, I'm saying vulnerability, but they may have the rights taken away from them from their children.
1: Well, it's not just that. I mean, I'm sure that's true, but it's also freaking embarrassing. The whole thing's embarrassing. You know, when you get violated like that and you get tricked and you cough up either a bunch of money or a bunch of Bitcoin to a ransomer. The whole situation is, is very embarrassing. And it's human nature, I think, to not want to damage your reputation by trying to keep it as quiet as possible. But it's happening so much into so many organizations that, you know, come join the Equifax Club, right? I mean, this, every, it, this stuff is, everybody's right. getting hacked.
0: It's less embarrassing now because everybody's having to happen.
1: You You would think so, but... Certainly, it would be better if people were more vocal about it. But you know, we're under very strict privacy guidelines with all of our clients.
0: That's an interesting point that you bring up about people being vocal about it. Are you familiar with Dark Neck Diaries? Mm-hmm. Jack Reesider has talked about that. That he has obviously hackers who tell him their stories and their exploits and adventures, but what he can't find are victims. Yeah, And he very badly wants victims. He's like, well, I'll have you anonymous. It's fine. But this is important stuff for people to know. But nobody will come forward. The IT departments are too embarrassed or, you know, whatever. Or they're afraid that somebody will hear them and know that they're talking about their company and they'll get fired.
1: Well, imagine if you were, Eric, uh, a CISSP, one of those security folks who worked at Equifax. Mm -hmm. How easy is it going to be for you to get that next Fortune 500 security job?
0: Well, it's going to be tough either way, unless you work for the government, because then you can say, we need to hire more people to help mitigate the situation. Yeah, that's the only place you can work and you can screw up royally and get more money. (laughs) That is the game you've got to have
1: yeah it's a it's a tough thing to get people to talk about it, but you know if more people talked about it, then it would be appropriately funded at the government level to play defense and you'd have possibly some federal support for some of these city municipalities that are getting hacked by overseas agents I mean imagine that you're a small city in Wisconsin and you control a dam right and and now there's somebody in the Eastern block of Europe who can do whatever he wants, open that thing up, close it. This is not a problem. And again, I know there's a lot of people out there. We need a smaller government and more local power. And let's we're spending too much money. We are spending dramatically too little money at the federal level to support our country, whether that's businesses, small businesses, small municipalities, to actually have things like legitimate firewalls and two-factor authentication or, or universal two factor. And a lot of these places have no budget for it and they don't have a staff for it and they desperately need help.
0: Well some of that is education. I mean honestly two factor is not that expensive.
1: Yeah, it it isn't.
0: And there's a lot of open source, you know, possibilities that can be used to very effectively.
1: Well and it's often not just the platform rollout, but how you do it. I mean you wouldn't believe how many of our clients they had the right technology It just wasn't Mm -hmm. configured right.
0: Oh, sure. You mean like a lot of admin accounts? I mean, I I know Jack Resider one of his biggest complaints is if he ever sees an administrator account in the logs being used, he gets pissed. Yeah. And by that, I mean the account name, Mm -hmm. administrator. Yeah. Yeah, those factory defaults. There should never be. It should always be because you want to know who did it. So you've Mm -hmm. got to have literally the people who are administrators doing things under their own name or their own alias. Which I've seen done too—the whole making fake names up for administrators and all kinds of different things. Some of them I think are ridiculous. Some are useful.
1: Yeah, I mean on the on the subject of usernames and passwords, I mean that's the most. If if anybody listening to this is kind of wondering, well, what what are the things that we should be doing here? Yeah, you know. <laughs> We talked about it a lot, you know, U2F or two-factor authentication. Like, when you log into your Gmail, when you log into your Facebook, when you log into your Twitter, when you log into your bank, most of these services allow for two-factor authentication. Set it up. Use it. It's going to add five seconds of annoyance every time you log in. That is the price that we pay for extra security. It's one of the simple things.
0: Also, not only two factor, but avoid SMS.
1: Yeah, I would use a, a rotating Google Authenticator code on my smartphone. Certainly, because especially when the bad guys are trying to to really specifically penetrate a particular organization. So when they're a specific target, we have seen it where they will go as far as to register cell phones. You know, either get them to get go into an Apple store with an iPhone and say, hey. Mm-hmm you know, I just lost my phone, you know, port my number, please. And then bang, you know, they get that SMS and they're good to go. So, and again, they usually have the username and password that when they log in, it's like, how do you want to two factor? And some of the options are, oh, email me, you know, or Hey, SMS, one of these numbers. And it ends with this. And it's like, I know enough about my client to know that there's a handful of things that this cell phone could be. And then they'll just go to, If they can trick somebody at a tele, you know, telecommunications company to port a number to a, to a burner phone, then then that's no good. So again, there's an app called Google Authenticator, and a lot of these services you can just log on and do it. But even better than all that is if you can log into most of your services with a YubiKey or a or a competitive U2F product, that is also you know a very very good thing to get into. And you can get a YubiKey on Amazon for fifty bucks. And it'll definitely dramatically improve how you log into stuff.
0: Now, that is carrying a separate device, though, with you beside your phone, correct? Yeah,
1: it's it's the size of a key. It's shaped like a key. You can put it on your keychain. And again, it's annoying. It's one of those five to ten seconds of annoyance that will improve your security. There's always a cost to these things.
0: And it's also a USB, right?
1: Yeah, it'll talk like uh, near field to your to your phone it'll plug in to your computer over usb so it's it's a pretty handy little doohickey it'll improve your security i recommend it i use it
0: okay well i'm i'm thinking of the situation now especially as we're switching between USB A to c to you know so you can run into problems there's like oh well, i can't use it with the stupid ports on this computer at this time
1: there's always going to be some annoying thing you know to deal with and you know Again, the all of these things that we do to better protect these networks. One of the classic things that when we go into these, you know, situations, you know, hey, when's the last time we audited the backups? It's like 19 out of 20 times they look at us like we're speaking, you know, <laughs> Latin. It's not good enough just to like say like, well, I have this one backup. It's like, where is it located? How do you access it? When is the last time you accessed it and did a mock restore and verified that your accounting data and your payroll data and your architecture designs and your emails and all your word documents. And when's the last time you actually made sure it was good. Yeah. And you know, the amount of companies, especially companies of less than a hundred people that have any clue the state of their backups. Well, and a lot of that
0: is, is just time.
1: It's time. You have to pay your IT staff or pay a managed service provider for like 10 hours a quarter or 10 hours twice a year to legitimately log into the backups, restore from it, verify everything is there, put their initials. That's the accountability. Like Bob logged into the backup and said that the QuickBooks file was current. He verified.
0: This is all all on-prem. What are your thoughts about companies just offloading and saying, you know what, I'm going to the cloud. Putting everything up there.
1: I wasn't specifically talking about prem. I was if you have a backup that, hey, we run these virtual servers and they go to this box over here on site, and so then those get synced up with the, you know, Dado or the storage craft cloud or the AWS cloud. Part of that mock restore is testing both phases of that backup and downloading the damn thing from AWS. Because sometimes you find out, well, we have a backup. And it is going to take approximately 18 days to download it.
0: Right. I, I, but you're still talking about on-prem. I, I was talking about literally servers in the cloud because I know a lot of companies are flat out saying, okay, all of our servers file, whatever. We have a print server on site, but everything else is in the cloud.
1: Yeah. And again, just because it's in the cloud doesn't mean you don't have to back it up. Well, hopefully they're backing it up. <laughs> they're probably not.
0: Okay. So you've run into that? Because, I mean, that's you know, part yes. of the service contract.
1: Most of the time, when you have a service contract with a managed service provider, they're supposed to back up your data and they're supposed to verify it. But there yeah. has to be accountability. Contracts are meaningless. There has to be business owners, business executives, board members need to understand who is our IT and how do we hold them accountable. And, who is meeting with them once a quarter to verify they're doing all the stuff that's in their contract?
0: Okay, so you're you're saying that if you're on Azure, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're safe. Mm-mm. Or that you're even being backed up. Even though you wrote a contract with Microsoft, that a backup is occurring? Well,
1: and certainly, you know, when you're talking about Microsoft, you're talking about Google, you're talking about Amazon. These are going to be more robust than they're legitimate Clouds. You know, So, again, one of the misconceptions is, oh, the cloud is just like a server on the Internet. It's not. It, it, it's, it's a more – it implies that there's a more robust bunch of storage behind it. So you're going to have incredibly high availability.
0: Well, they are servers on the Internet. However they you are. You it's just they're put together in a particular fabric and clustered in a different manner that's far more complex than saying, oh, here's my data center. You can hook up to it with a wire.
1: But if I can log into it as you and you have that's permission it. to edit files, I can encrypt them.
0: All true. So now let's look at that. What steps can we take? And you mentioned the UB key. Any other ones? I talked about not using the administrator. Another one I've heard of is having uh, different level of accounts that can only do certain things, like one administrator account can only do like password changes.
1: User permissions are huge. So you wouldn't believe how many clients have these God mode users who can access everything on the network. And it's like, oh, my gosh, why would you ever do that? You know, why would the guy who's my executive of my finance guy have any access to the marketing data at all? Right. And, again, not a lot of thought in many organizations is put into user permissions. So everything we are talking about with YubiKeys and passwords and key passes and all that was all talking about authentication. How do you authenticate? Mm-hmm. You can also, you know, so we kind of favor like almost four levels of authentication because we are about as paranoid as it gets. But on the different Mm -hmm. subjects, one of the biggest things that companies don't do is asset management. Boy, is that boring. Like you walk into a company who wants your help protecting them. Okay, where's your list of all of your nodes, all of your laptops, all of your desktops, all of your servers, all of your cloud services? Mm -hmm. Where's the list?
0: When were they updated? What's their virus level? If it
1: exists, it hasn't been touched in like, 24 months, hmm. and when you go talk to the marketing department, it's like, oh yeah, we don't use that anymore. We're all over on HubSpot now. And it's like, well, how do you log into HubSpot? Oh, username and password. And if I had, a, if I get your username and password, I can download all 38,000 of your clients' records. Yes. Mm, okay. You know, so until you start asking those questions, they don't, they haven't, they just haven't thought about it. But so, asset management. Where's all your stuff? Do you have any, where's your at least spreadsheet of all the stuff you have and the Mac addresses and what operating systems they're running? That's, and if you don't know how much stuff you have, how do you know what's protected and what isn't? And the next biggest thing that we see, which is a big follow-up there, is patch management. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of these problems happen when the bad guys develop software that doesn't need to worry about authentication. It it can just hammer a bug in the operating system or a bug in the firewall, and they can just root the actual whole network, even if they don't have any usernames or passwords, because there's a bug in Microsoft or there's a bug in Cisco software. And what really... they're
0: high enough level to antivirus isn't going to pick them up either because they just wrote it today.
1: Well, and the antivirus is not going to protect against, again, to your point, that's That's going to sit inside the running operating system, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, and and often, you know, Google has done a press release that said, hey, we found this bug with this operating system. And that operating system has already patched it. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to encourage the world to patch your operating system. Please. And and you wouldn't believe how many companies are just rocking 17 updates behind. They haven't patched in two years because they didn't even know that they were running a Windows XP box in the corner for the print server.
0: So do you recommend, if you can afford it, tools like centralized patching systems? With, you know, they're tracking all the systems on the network. Other things like, you know, shutting down all ports on switches, having a Mac address list that's only allowed on every switch,
1: stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely, Eric. I mean, that that is the type of advanced thing that that I wish that if everybody was doing, you know, the world would not be suffering from billions of dollars of, of ransoms every year and there'd be a lot less stress, but that's the dirty work. And that dirty work never happens unless the CFOs, the CEOs, the board members of these organizations understand enough about this stuff to properly fund it.
0: Well, tell me the truth. You've been around a while. How many times does a company have a great policy but the CEO doesn't bother with it and they kind of ride above? So if you can hack the CEO or somebody else in the in the row, you can get right into the network. While everybody else is practicing good hygiene, sometimes power players just eh, they don't necessarily oh you know, have the same rules.
1: Oh, it's definitely, yeah. I mentioned that we see lots of incidents here, you know, hundreds and hundreds of incidents a month. And that, what you're talking about is when those power players don't want to bother with the inconvenience. Yep. We had a company, a small company, about 30 or 40 tax professionals. And it was, it was in tax season and they were, working there, 90 hour weeks cause they were in tax season and one of their executives did exactly what you're talking about. He, he was struggling with this stupid two factor login and he told his MSP, turn it off. I just need to log into my box so I can work from home. And they recommended how they told him how dumb it was and that they didn't want to do it. And it was a very, as an MSP, you can get fired. Mm-hmm. As an employee who's, who's an IT person, you can get fired. Right. And right. if somebody wants to try to big ball you, it really depends on the spine of that IT person. And I, I don't really, I could see how people would do it. Now, I, I'd rather get fired and tell them to stick it and explain vehemently why I'm not going to do it. And I'll drive to your house and log in for you if you want. But, <laughs> you know, not everybody is kind of built with that and good security has to start from the top right and not from the it people
0: <laughs> well, that's why i wanted to point it out because i i do and i've personally seen this that the uh, worst people with the scratch pads under the keyboard often are higher up and another example you mentioned user permissions i own this company i run this company i have rights to everything no no you don't no
1: or why would you want it in an automated fashion on a whim like why why not bother with the hey if you ever want to get into the the marketing share come ask the guy in the marketing department
0: or tell him to give you the file
1: you want right <laughs> but yeah it, it and, and those guy those those folks who are on those boards and they are the CEOs and the CFOs they're typically non-technologists and yeah. they tend to have the worst general hygiene right they they tend to have the worst they have that one password that's the street they grew up on that i can just look up on the internet in five seconds you know and that blows people's minds that if you know if you don't if you if you think i'm full of crap go to familytreenow.com put your name in there oh, no 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 no. it's no. gonna show you your last six addresses it's just publicly available these days guys
0: oh it's disturbing you don't even have to pay 30 bucks a month there's enough sites that'll give you a preview yeah, it's free so, yeah, I've, I've totally seen that now. Okay. So I'm not trying to get out of a bunch of stuff, but to help the listener, what is some very basic, inexpensive things that they can do to keep themselves safer? So now, obviously they're not doing everything, but this is kind of like the whole thing of if you lock your car doors, they could still break in, but they're probably going to go to the next car that's not locked. So, what are some of those things that you
1: could do? So, back up your data, inexpensive. There's a company called Carbonite that's been around for like 10 years. I think it's like 50 bucks a year. And I'm pretty sure you can set up two factor authentication and set it up. And I'm talking about home users here. Right, right. That's right. You're a home user or a solo entrepreneur. You know, buy at least the Carbonite or a storage craft license and back up your stuff in an automated fashion and set up the two-factor authentication and hopefully whatever backup you choose has revision history. So if all your data gets encrypted and then they back up the encrypted stuff, you can go back to revision two. So make sure that you buy a plan that has a revision history and two-factor authentication. We mentioned YubiKey or if you're not going to be comfortable with having to carry around that physical key, set up two-factor authentication everywhere have a Google Authenticator on your smartphone because everybody has a smartphone. Download the Google Authenticator app for the iTunes store or the Android store and, and use it on every site that can do it. If your bank doesn't support two-factor authentication, find a different bank. It's it's pretty much, or just demand that they have it and then eventually they'll listen. If you, key pass, so if, if you really, you have to use a password manager of some I'm kind. I going to ask you about that. That's going to generate yeah. big, nasty unique passwords for every site you know we were talking earlier about how the bad guys own and then decrypt these large password databases from p- places like Yahoo and now we have 2 billion passwords and now we can right. email people and say hey i've got your password have a big nasty password everywhere you're a human you're not going to remember 45 big nasty passwords so get a password what do you man. think
0: about I mean, to save money, like Safari suggests like 30 character passwords with mixed characters. It's just built into the browser.
1: Yeah. I, again, for me personally, if I, if I'm on a site where I need to use something like a key pass, I'm going to use as many characters as they'll let me. So if if I'm logging into Gmail, 256 characters, you know, because I don't type it. I use a Right. I use a password manager. So again, I I don't want. Again, you want to use your browser. Well, now you're hoping that there's not going to be an exploit on your Safari browser or on your Mozilla or on your Firefox. And these things get exploited over the time, you know, so I I prefer. Well, you're
0: still storing them somewhere. I prefer to store them somewhere.
1: And my password for my password database is huge. Mm, And I don't have it written down anywhere. Other than there is a copy of it in my safe deposit box. So if I get hit by a bus, my wife can find it. Okay. Otherwise, be really suspicious about emails. Dial up your skepticism on all your emails that you get sent.
0: Yeah, as a rule, I always just figure I never use a link in an email. Pretty much. If I much. hear something from a bank, I'll just go to the bank.
1: Yeah, exactly right. When it comes to, uh, I, again, if, if you're a user and you're backing all your data up in an automated way, you're using two-factor or U2F everywhere, if you take those baby steps... You're going to be better off than most. Make sure that you patch your operating system. You know, if you're 18 patches behind on your iPhone because you hate the three hours it takes to patch it sometimes, deal with it. When they come out with a patch, it's usually for security reasons. Patch it because there there are like these zero-day exploits for these smart devices where they can just send you a text and root your phone sometimes. So you need to patch.
0: Do you have an opinion? Do you prefer Android, Apple. or iPhone? Is it safer?
1: I believe, yeah. I I'll tell you on our digital forensics side, we have the most trouble hacking into iPhones. Okay.
0: Especially fully patched.
1: Yeah. It's incre- yeah if they're fully patched, we got a real problem.
0: Then you got to call Israel.
1: Yeah. There there are a number of. <laughs> we've had a relationship <laughs> with an Israeli company, which is an, I think now owned by the Chinese. Hopefully, I'm not wrong about that. Oh, called Celebrate. And uh, for a number of years, and and they're not the that only ones. That was the ones.
0: one that ultimately hit the San Bernardino attackers for the FBI, I think, isn't it? I can't confirm or deny. I wouldn't want okay.
1: to say because I'm not sure how much of this is public domain, and I know some of these folks personally who ever were involved with some of this stuff. So, yeah, it's – there are always – People trying to find these zero-day exploits, trying to bypass authentication, sometimes for good because a terrorist right, you know, right. shot up a town and they want to know if he's part of a cell. So it's not always mm. nefarious reasons for hacking. But sure. Apple has been the most vocal and the, they've told the line the most about, hey, the best thing for the world at large in every situation is to try and keep these devices as secure as possible and that means not planting a bunch of back doors for
0: yeah they seem to be actually working the opposite way trying to lock they're trying to almost lock themselves out of it and i think they've stated it we're trying to keep it to where we can't get in
1: correct and and there's a there's a monetary reason for that too right i mean
0: they can't yeah they don't make money on it yeah on the government
1: network. can't force you to unlock devices and spend thousands of hours of engineering if you actually make it impossible so right but yeah it's as much as you know it it pains us when we have to try to hack into some of these things my personal belief is that they're they're in the right and that in general society is best off and we're going to be safest from places like overseas state actors who are trying to hack all kinds of things in america if they're not designed with these back doors because if they're designed with those back doors, it's only a matter of time before they're going to get utilized by people that that they weren't designed for.
0: Yep. And that, and that's not even a, a possibility. That's a rule.
1: That's a rule. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the hackers, a lot of the ransomware people are using exploits that came out of government defense agencies.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Because, yeah, if there's a person no was uh the only way to keep a secret is if there's two people on one's dead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that's not a bad saying,
0: but um, all right. Well, on that happy note, if people really do get their selves in underwater, they can find you at Gilware dot com.
1: Yeah. So I'm Brian Gill. You can find me at Gilware dot com. G.I.L.L.W.A.R.E. If you're a mid-sized business and you have an IT guy like Eric laying around, you can go to Gilware and take a ransomware stress test for free. It's basically a tool that lets you kind of self-assess where you're at as an organization, where uh, across about 40 different categories, and you get a a score for all of them. And it'll also give you complimentary remediation tips for some of these categories that you're falling behind. And a lot of people take it and see that, "Mm," you know, uh, again, it's, it exists to add a ton of value, but certainly there are quite a few companies that take it and get really, really scared. And then, and not, it's not designed to scare you. It's just designed to play it straight, but they get scared and they end up hiring us to help give them some advice on how to move forward.
0: (laughs) Well, it should scare people a little bit, or what's the point?
1: Well, it, and again, it, it's like, oh, I don't care. It was designed nah, to play it care. straight, and the numbers are scary enough, and it's legitimate. And again, it, it everybody should be more scared, and everybody should be spending more time playing defense. Because I'm getting, I work in it, and I have a vested interest in in these hacks happening. But even for me, this is way too much. And you have
0: more work than you can handle. We
1: do, and, and as a society, <laughs> we have more work than we can handle. And it's one of the reasons why probably less than 5% of these incidents are even investigated by any level of government here in the U.S., because the local municipalities don't have the resources. And even the FBI doesn't have the resources to investigate even 5% of these hacks. And a lot of those investigations, they're not properly funded and armed to really go Get these guys. You know, I mean we
0: And even if they are, what are you gonna do? They're in Russia.
1: We we gotta be starting. I mean, Vlad, here. You, you mentioned <laughs> you <turn> them over? <laughs> you mentioned Israel earlier, you know, and, and Israel starts with this security stuff really early. Like they identify kids when they're in third grade as yeah. as this this kid has a brain that might play really well in this internet defense space and they're they're tagged early and encouraged early to to follow that path and you know I would love to see a similar program you know we have different a lot of differences here in this country but you know I, I would love it if if we had more time spent learning how to computer program at the third and fourth and fifth grade levels when when the brain is really in that like learn language mode you know that would be yeah, awesome or just
0: make it a Just a standard thing where kids can drop in and out of it if they want, but it's the same as, like, learning instruments used to
1: be. Yeah, and and I'd love to see the, you know, the federal government and the public sector hire another 100,000 internet security professionals and hackers and anti-hackers, but, you know, there's, right now there just isn't the funding either from the, the public sector or the private sector is just dramatically underfunding the whole thing, so... I think it's going to get worse for the next couple of years.
0: Well, I'm not happy. Now. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Brian.
1: <laughs> Eric, it was a pleasure. You, the man it's a, it's an honor to be on the same show as an ex American gladiator who I worshiped as a child. Who was, one, he was one of your last guests. I mean, yes. Yeah. So cool. uh, you're the man. Appreciate your show. Love it. Hopefully I was unstructured enough.
0: All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out.
1: Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, tysonfranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. Yeah, I had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer.
0: Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years.
1: Money is a tool, it's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter
0: most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy.
1: Listen to Inspired Money at InspiredMoney.fm.